James, thank you so much for being with us here this evening. Uh, you were telling me how you've been to Oxford a few times before? I have. I'm amazed that you want to come and listen to me talk because I have nothing of any value to say to any, any people <laughs> nearly as bright as you. Um, I was at Bristol and I was thick. Um, but, uh, but it's a huge honour to be invited here. Thanks for having me. I think the first question, of course, you didn't apply to Oxford, did you? Um, no, I didn't dream of it. Um, so I did come here for many good parties. I've come and got drunk here in Oxford. Um, I've passed out on some of your floors. <laughs> if there are stains on the floors, that could well have been me being sick. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, when I was sober enough, I would drive back down to Bristol. So, yeah, you went to Bristol, and uh, I suppose we should start at the beginning, because, of course, you went straight into the, uh, into the military from there, and your family has a strong line of service in the military. I believe that is it dating back to the 10th century. Yes, exactly. Um, my family is related from Denmark, King Gorm, which is the opposite of Gormless. <laughs> so were you always going into the military? <laughs> Took a while, but they got there in the end. <laughs> were you always going to go into the military? Was there any chance of doing something else? Um, my father was a, was a, a helicopter pilot. Um, and so I, you know, I need to talk about university, really, with you, because, because I was passionate about university. I loved it. Um, and as a helicopter pilot, I got my own pilot's license at age 16, which you can get. The RAF actually pay for you to get your pilot's license. Um, and you promise them that you are going to join them. And then, and then I didn't. Um, <laughs> and, I, uh, and then I thought, I'll build planes. So I studied, um, I uh, went to Bristol University to do aerospace manufacturing engineering, which I couldn't spell. Uh, and, I, and I changed after the first year, having got 5%, 5%, 11%, 13 and 15% in my first year exams <laughs> to do social policy. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've ended up with a degree in sociology. I'm a scientist. Uh, and, and in fact, now, I, mean, I, I don't know if you're going to ask me this. I can just talk for hours. In fact, I didn't prepare a speech. I'm just going to talk about myself. It's lovely. Um, LAUGHTER and uh, in fact, last month, Bristol University gave me a do an honorary doctorate as well. I'm now Dr. Blunt. Um, <laughs> it's truly ridiculous. And in f it was the most embarrassing thing uh, ever, in fact, because I had to stand up on the stage while real doctors, having you know, achieved their PhD after five years of study, came up and, and they got their eight seconds of s on the stage to do the funny handshake that you do, and off they were told to bugger off with their doctorate. And I was given a full 10-minute speech about my huge achievements of my life, which, if we're all totally honest, is, is a three-minute, 30-second song. Um, <laughs> and, um, so, yeah. Dr. Blunt. Well, we're glad that you're here, Dr. Blunt. Uh, so, you went off to uh, serve in Kosovo under, uh, with NATO. Do you have any enduring memories from that experience? Yeah, I stopped World War III. Um, <laughs> And, and, and that was a big moment. Anything else? <laughs> well, of course, following your military career, that's when you really got You're really not going to ask me about stopping World War III. <laughs> this is my... Dr. I can Blunt, show how off. did you stop World War III? So, what happened was... <laughs> this is a totally serious... Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not lying. Um, in that... You don't believe me, do you? I was a reconnaissance officer in the House of Cavalry, I was put to lead 30,000 people up uh, to Pristina Airport, and the Russians were told to beat us. Um, and uh, during this process, I was told to cross minefields, you know, which were obviously quite, quite uh, dangerous, um, and to go through tunnels, which were mined as well, which were quite dangerous. And when we eventually got to Pristina Airport, 
and we've be been beaten there by 200 Russians. And I have to say, this is the only serious thing I'll probably say this evening, which is the most amazing day of my entire life. Stuff everything else I've ever done, this was the moment of my life that I would much prefer to be remembered for in many ways, was that 200 Russians pointed their guns at me and 30,000 people behind us and said um, that we weren't allowed on to this airfield. If we tried, um, they would uh, take fire. And I was told by a, a man called General Wesley Clark, who um, ran for president after that, he gave instructions to us to overrun and overpower the Russians. Um, which was, as this came down, that was the most amazing instruction in the world, to overrun and overpower 200 Russians. And of course we could, there were 30,000 of us. It was you know, easy to do, we were all in tanks, and I was with a bunch of paratroopers who really wanted to fight. Uh, and, um, and after five minutes of, of trying to argue with, um, with this General Wesley Clark, an amazing man um, whose name I want you to know, General Mike Jackson, came up on the radio and said, do not be stupid, I will not have my soldiers be responsible for starting World War III. Blunt, he said to me, in my, in my code name, I didn't call me James at that time, I had a code name, and we, he pulled me back, um, and we surrounded this airfield, and two days later the Russians ran out of water and food, and they said, can we, uh, sh can we share your food and water? And we said, if you sh share the airport, we'll share our food and water, and that way, World War III, we think, was averted. So maybe, so maybe it should say General Mike Jackson stopped World War Three and James Blunt was here. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you stopped World War Three by getting out your guitar and singing a lullaby and everyone yeah. was happy. Yeah, I did offer when the Afghanistan war um, uh, happened to go and uh, maybe sing the Taliban into surrender, but I haven't been, uh, yeah, haven't been asked to do that. Did you play music whilst in the military? I did. Um, I was brought out. Um, I strapped my guitar to my tank. And you know, everyone brings a, uh, either you know, a football or some cards, um, and I, would I wouldn't go and sing goodbye my love to a bunch of soldiers, I would have had a crap kicked out of me. Um, but yeah, everyone, uh, you know, we, everyone needs a little bit of entertainment. So what made you decide to leave the military then in, uh, in 2002 eventually? Uh, the pay wasn't so good. <laughs> and you could just foresee this great musical success you're going to go on to achieve. Yeah, I think I was incredibly naive. I think also I had told so many people that I was going to be um, a famous, successful musician that most of my um, uh, soldiers with me said, you're going to have to stop talking about this eventually and you're going to have to go and do it. Did you really believe that you were going to go on and achieve that kind of success? Yeah, I think naivety is a really great thing. Um, and yeah, I did. I thought they were, you know, I think... I think when you have an ambition, you know, a blind ambition is kind of necessary. If you know how, how many other people are trying to do what you're doing, it's easy to become overwhelmed. I mean, you know, all of you guys are going to leave university at some stage, and you might have ambitions, and you've got to have confidence that you will achieve those. Um, and naivety in those is a great, great thing. It, when I went to Los Angeles, having signed a record deal, um, if I had realised how many thousands of people were after that same record deal and how many thousands of them were far more talented than me, then I would have been stuffed. It was really quite late, though, that you moved into your music career. It was only in 2004 that your first album, Back to Bedlam, was released. When did you know that you wanted to make that career change and pursue a life in music? Um, I started doing music when I was 14. Um, my mother made me, really, um, from a young age. She made me learn the violin, um, a thing called the Suzuki method, which meant we had to dance anti-clockwise around some hot cross buns, um, which I think is a satanic ritual. 
uh, but she's never been arrested for it. Um, and, um, and from there, I took up uh, piano um, and said, yeah, you know, this, this would be a, a great thing to do. Um, obviously, my father's pretty keen on me doing the army and having a proper job first. Do you still think about that girl from Your Beautiful? No. <laughs> um, I don't. I'm very grateful to her because, um, because it's allowed me to buy a, a decent-sized house. <laughs> Are we able to know who she was? Um, she was, a, you know, a stranger on the... Uh, uh, she was an ex-girlfriend, actually. I did, uh, did recognise her um, as an ex-girlfriend with a new boyfriend, but, um, but no, she means nothing to me. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm a very happily married man, and my wife is here tonight. Shout out to Sophia. <laughs> uh, have you found that since you've been happily married, has that changed your style of music at all, or how you go about writing songs? It's been very difficult um, to, um, to write any um, sellable songs since then because um, misery sells. And so, yeah, I'm far too happy at the moment to write anything, so don't expect any decent music from me. <laughs> well, I was going to say, many of your songs do have quite a, uh, a deep and sombre, some may say depressing theme. Yeah. Um, where do you draw your inspiration from for your songs? In the past, which I'm not going to do with my marriage, um, but in the past I've definitely tried to kind of split up with people in order to get inspiration from them. <laughs> Did your military career, has that influenced your songwriting at all? Um, only, I have one song, I've got one song um, from my time in Kosovo, a song called No Bravery, I don't know if any of you um, know it at all, and it's amazing actually, you know, when, when you have real true inspiration, uh, you really don't have to think about a song. It kind of writes itself. You just, you know, see what you see, say what you see. Um, and, and honesty is, is so evident, I think, in, in any kind of art. So tell us a bit about that process. When you say that you want to write a song, does the music come first? Do the lyrics come first? Does it all happen together at the same time? Um, there are simply no rules. I think probably a, best, a, a better song comes fast. Um, so you're beautiful is a three minute, 30 second song, and I wrote it in about two minutes. Um, and, and yeah, and I, you know, and I saw a person and I wrote a bunch of lyrics and that was that. Um, some of my more recent songs are taking me slightly longer to write. <laughs> Having writer's block. Yeah. What's the favorite song that you've ever written? Um, I think, well, my, f my f most famous song is, is You're Beautiful, but from the first album, that was about one second of my life, of walking past someone and, and getting eye contact. Um, and, you know, and of yeah, but actually a much more meaningful song on that first album is a song called Goodbye My Lover, which is about a lifetime of regret and remorse. Um, and yeah, so I suppose it's never probably your best song as a, an artist, it's probably never your big single, which is the one you love the most. So I suppose in this next chapter of your life, now that you are happily married, should we be expecting a new album coming out anytime soon? Having uh, just had a child, um, I, uh, I, I'm really enjoying uh, touring the world so I can get some sleep. <laughs> so I know that when you were starting out, you got in contact with Todd Interland, the manager of Sir Elton John, who I believe has always been one of your great inspirations. And do you have other big inspirations who really drew you into the world of music originally? Um, I didn't know that much about music. And, you know, I didn't have an, I'm not an encyclopedia of music um, in any way. And again, I think that naivety is pretty good. If you know too many rules about anything, 
um, then it restricts you in so many ways. Um, but yeah, Elton John was absolutely amazing to me. Um, he is a man who gives so much to charity, to his AIDS foundation, um, and he also gives many opportunities for new musicians. And so my first ever concert, really, with a band was to 50 people. And the very next day, my second ever concert with a band was to 50,000 people. Um, uh, uh, supporting Elton John, absolutely amazing. Um, he took me touring around the UK and around South America, um, and he's a man who I am phenomenally lucky to have met. So in the same way, do you now try and be there for new up-and-coming artists? I've asked Elton if he wants to come on tour with me and support me, you know, and, <laughs> um, and I'm sure he'll need to pretty soon. <laughs> who do you think are the ones to watch over the next few years? Do you have your eyes on any, any people? Any young musician you yeah, like to listen to? Yeah, I hear well, you know, little names that are coming up. I hear Ed Sheeran might be doing well pretty soon, if you li keep a listen out for him. <laughs> so, of course, um, aside from the music, we know that you're into a number of things. You're a keen motorbiker, you're a keen skier, you're involved with Help for Heroes. And I know that uh, when you were younger, you captained the Household Cavalry Alpine Ski Team in Verbier. And uh, we've got Lindsay Vaughan here next week. I was wondering if you fancied racing Fancied her. Lindsay Vaughan, yeah. Um, it's a girl. Um, no, no. Lindsay Vaughan, great skier. And I've raced against her and lost. Um, and what was the question again? Well, I was going to ask, ask you if you backed yourself oh, against Oh, I know exactly what it was. Really it was about lost. skiing. You want to know why on earth the army is sent to, uh, to Switzerland, to Verbier, to ski, and why your parents' taxes have been spent on sending me there well, you slept under the blanket of my security while I defended uh, the borders in Switzerland, and I think you find that no one attacked whilst I was there. Thank you for answering the question I never asked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was the most amazing thing um, that, the, uh, that the army sent soldiers, really who'd had a pretty crappy time, perhaps, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they sent us to Verbier um, uh, to race against each other. And, and I did four seasons... Um, and for young soldiers who've never skied, it was a pretty amazing thing of doing a downhill race, which you have to overcome a certain amount of fear if you're then going to do, you know, sort of 80, uh, 81, 80, uh, 85 miles an hour. I think we were you know, maxed out at probably. Um, and so, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was also great fun. Thank you very much to your parents. <laughs> it really is a hard life. We, we all feel for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're, of course, quite a prolific user of Twitter. Your Twitter account's very funny, very self-deprecating. Uh, are you going to be tweeting at all about this evening? Yes. <laughs> yes, I, yes, if it's fun, I will. Um, <laughs> I do. Um, Twitter's such a strange thing because it's a, a place where people voice their opinions. And I said on Twitter, opinions are like arseholes. Everybody has one. Um, and, I, and I wonder if we should keep, it, keep them to ourselves in many ways. It's such a strange place that we voice our opinions and often so, so cruelly. And, and again, I wonder if, if you haven't got anything nice to say, perhaps one shouldn't say it at all. And so what I do do on Twitter is just reply um, to the people who are negative. I actually brought some uh, draft tweets. I don't know how best to get them out in any way. Um, I got a, a whole bunch. I wonder if I should just pass them around. Because I thought, you, you know... <laughs> Because I was just at Bristol, and I'm very, not, very, not very bright, and I thought, you know, I've got some that I'm, I, I'm struggling to find answers for. And I thought, well, hey, shit me, that's a good idea. I could get some people at Oxford to write my answers for me, and I would tweet them. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you read some out, we can see if anyone has any suggestions they'd like to offer James. Yeah, so I, and I could even pass these around, and if you've got a pen, you could write a quick answer to, or I don't know how best, do you have a, a thing? I'm just going to literally, you know, it's like this person called Chelsea says, think I am the only person that can't stand James Blunt. 
Yeah, and so you're going to just think of an answer and you're going to come and tell me later. James, this is another word, Karen says, James Blunt seems too much of a puff to have been in the army. <laughs> Which I would probably say, like, I look bigger with a gun. Um, Paul puts, little bit of James Blunt never hurt anybody. <laughs> and I'd probably say, like, depends where I put it. Um, maybe I'll pass them round. Should I pass them round? And if you just have a, an idea, if you, I'll, I'll wait till the end, because then I could just—it would be amazing for me. And then I could say, and I wouldn't tell anyone. The only deal is that if I use these, I'm not going to say it's you. Okay? They've come from me. And can we just have a deal that no one says that it's from them? Yeah? Great stuff. Pass round. Write your answers. No crap ones. Okay, that's awesome. This is like my homework. <laughs> Just done. Yeah, what else? If anyone, if anyone else buys me a James Bond album for Mother Day, Mother's Day, I'll kill them. <laughs> <coughs> yeah? Pass it to the bright people. What else have we got? James Bond, word on the street is you're gay. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Don't tell my wife. Good, well, we, we hope to be oh, sorry, of service. Yes. I'll catch those at the end, that's your homework. Great, well, that seems like a good opportunity to uh, go to the audience more generally. So if you would like to ask a question, please raise your hand up high and wait for the microphone to come down to you. We'll start off with a question from the lady at the end of the back row. Hello, uh, I have a question as, Actually, I'm a sociologist. So a sociologist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I was happy to know that um, you did it as well. And I think that sociology is really very inspirational science. And I have a question as I live in academia mostly, but did sociology itself help you to be inspired about this information, what people do, what people like? You know, when you have big picture, is it a bit like important for you? If I'm honest, yes, absolutely. I did. Sociology is about how people interact with each other, and I write songs about pe how people interact. I also did my dissertation on the commodification. The title is this. It's not even a poll full word. The com commodification of image, production of a pop idol. That was my dissertation, and basically I robbed uh, quotes from a man called Simon Frith, a great sociologist um, who is now on the board of the Mercury Awards. Um, and I just robbed him as his thing. And then afterwards, when I had hit it big, unknowingly, he, he actually did a tour um, on what is everything that's wrong with James Blunt. <laughs> was the, his lecture tour that he did through university. So I feel I've come full circle. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, everyone's quite shy. Uh, let's go to the question from the lady in the aisle on my right-hand side. Hi, um, I want to ask about your enduring memories of an um, appearance you made on Sesame Street. Yes, that's the highlight of my career. Apart from here. <laughs> well saved. Um, uh, it was amazing. I appeared on Sesame Street. I had to sing um, my triangle to the tune of You're Beautiful and I had lost my triangle. No, Telemonster had lost his triangle and I had to find it. Um, and it is the most amazing experience. It is a huge honour to be on Sesame Street. Um, and, and I met, what's his name? What's the little one called? Gonzo? Enzo? 
Anyone? No one watches Sesame Street. <laughs> that really surprises me. Well, I met the little one. And actually, his puppeteer is the most enormous, great um, guy with the lowest voice you can possibly imagine. But obviously, the puppet, when it comes alive, is alive. And the man controlling it is, is no more. Um, and this puppet has the most squeaky voice you can imagine. And so to see it all in action was incredible. And, and to be there was a huge honor. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to the question from the gentleman on, the, uh, on my right-hand side. Hi. Um, a while ago, I was, doing, I was looking into what the song Wise Men was about, and I found a few sort of conflicting stories and a few meanings, so I was wondering if I could ask you what the song meant to you, and, and specifically what a semi by the sea is, which I have no idea. <laughs> It's a totally meaningless song. <laughs> Generally, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I was sober at the time that I wrote it. Um, but I am assuming uh, that it is neither a, um, uh, a semi-lobon, nor semi-automatic, but um, a semi-detached building. <laughs> I, need to go and, I need to go and Google it myself. I'm not sure. <laughs> I hope that clarifies things. Uh, we'll go to the question from lady in the third row on my left-hand side. Hi, um, thank you for your help with uh, Help for Heroes. Um, I'm a first lieutenant in the US Army and I study post-traumatic stress here. And I was wondering what you thought the biggest uh, like mental health or just like any sort of health conditions are gonna be facing British veterans in the next decade after the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. What's the next? What do you think like the biggest kind of like health um, kind of issues they're going to face in the, the next... soldiers? Yeah, soldiers. You, I think you've hit the nail on the head. PTSD is exactly what is, uh, is affecting most of them. Um, and, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, soldiers generally don't talk to each other that much, and we don't ask for help that much. And most of us are fine because we have incredibly dark humour, incredibly dark humour. I mean, we see absolutely vile things and learn to laugh about it in a, in a way that actually when we come back it's quite hard to then discuss with people. If you ask me about many of the things that I saw, I can't genuinely talk about them with a straight face. I genuinely, genuinely find I, I start smiling about some of the most awful things because it's the only way that my brain can deal with it. And as a result, I'm fine, but there are many, many soldiers who, who need to talk about it and amongst soldiers and amongst their own family um, can't. And so, yeah, it is the kind of the, the hidden illness. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to the question in the second row on my right-hand side. You've done lots of work for charity. What do you think the role of celebrities is in terms of helping with charity? How much should they get involved? Um, I don't think celebrities are in any way role models. I mean, you, know, you can see that every day from the stories you read about celebrities and, and you know, how they let themselves down, but they let themselves down as much as anyone else does. Um, and so I don't think we should expect them to be a certain uh, thing or, or to do um, certain things in any way um, because they're just humans and you know what, they're just actors and musicians. Um, it, it, we're not that bright, um, we're, we're you know, not necessarily that interesting, um, we're definitely not nearly as talented as many of you guys. Um, so, you know, who should give to charity? Well, all of us should do our bit. Um, but I think really you should follow your interests. Um, and I am a great supporter of 
I'm helpful here is obviously because of my time in, uh, with soldiers um, in the army, um, but also with Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, because I think in war it was so evident to me that of the, of, for every soldier that might be injured, there are probably at least 10 civilians who suffer far more. Um, and so f for me, um, that's why I get involved, but it's because it's a personal interest, and I don't think one should expect every celebrity to be involved in it at all. Thank you. Uh, the question on the back row on my left-hand side. Hi, so obviously you've been on tour around the world, um, and I was just wondering where your favourite place to perform and kind of be is? Um, my favourite place to play in the world is Beirut in Lebanon, um, and it is an amazing place, and I really... Um, uh, I ask you to go and visit it because it's an incredible um, mixture of Muslim, Christian and Jew, um, of European meets uh, the Middle East, uh, on you know, mountains where uh, my parents used to go skiing and got engaged down to the Mediterranean Sea where I now live um, myself. It's absolutely stunning and uh, you know, the architecture is phenomenal, the food is phenomenal and the people who make up the city are incredible. I think because perhaps you know, the bomb might go off any moment. When you live with that kind of fear, then you live for the moment, uh, and they are very much alive. And they uh, gave me 12 security guards to look after me, of which I'm a, a small human being, and I really don't need 12, human, uh, 12 big, burly bodyguards because, you know, who's going who's gonna to attack me? Um, and, uh, and of the 12 security guards who lined up in front of the stage, they were overrun by the audience, overpowered. Um, this audience, you know, um, jumped onto the stage, um, took everything we had, um, and <laughs> um, and it was the most the most amazing atmosphere in the world. You live in Ibiza, is that right? I do, yes. Have you ever gone to perform in some of the nightclubs there? Um, def no. I have you listened to my music? It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, if they wanted people to leave at the end of the night, perhaps they'd play my songs. Um, I, the only song I really have had played in there is I have a song called 1973, which is about its most famous nightclub called Pasha, which opened in 1973. If you ever go, as you walk in, you'll see the date above, and I wrote the song called 1973, and Pete Tong remixed it, and he plays it in there, and um, yeah, and that's a thrill. Feel free to write a song about the Union, 1823, that's when we were founded. 1823, it's got a ring, it's got a ring to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we'll go to the, uh, the next question from the audience. Can we go to the question on the second row over here? Hi. Um, how do you feel that like free music streaming platforms might affect the music industry? Um, I don't really enjoy it very much. Um, I need to. I wonder if I can go online very very quickly. I need to turn my phone back on. Um, but record labels, I suppose, do their own deals with the streaming um, services. So they'll take a you know a lump sum and and then little of it, little of it then passes down to musicians, um, which is fine. You know, you're looking at me and going, hey. James, look, we know you're very rich now, stop complaining about it. I am, and I'm super lucky, and I tour, um, and I've been in the business for a long time, and, uh, and, so, and I'm not necessarily complaining for myself. What I would say is that any new musician who's trying to get into the business is kind of stuffed, because it's just being, you know, all, all the good stuff is going to the Ed Sheerans of the world, um, and, and new musicians are finding it very hard to get investment and funding and, and, you know, and trickle down. I really want to try and find out um, now how much I get per stream. Um, hold on, give me 30 seconds on this. Um, I just, I actually tweeted it, as you do. Okay. I'm with you. 
I get paid. So in pounds, zero zero point zero 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 four four nine pence per stream. So yeah, so you know, pretty tough. <laughs> that means I need a, a million or so streams um, to, to get a couple of grand really. So please keep streaming. <laughs> Um, but I tell you what, you know, it is really nice then, the, the Adels of the world are laughing because she's, you know, got a really broad-based spectrum of people who are streaming but downloading, um, you know, the, the actual the songs, but the albums themselves, and she's also got the older generation who are still going out there and getting the, the hard copies of CDs, um, which, you know, which, which is where the money is. At the same time, I have to say, you know, I, I wouldn't buy a CD anymore, um, and I love downloading, and I love having, you know, I've got tens of thousands of um, songs on this. So, so the modern world of the digital world, I'm into, definitely. So what advice would you have then for young artists who are trying to make something of themselves, who need the publicity that's offered by online streaming services, but also can't really make much money that way? Uh, uh, do a sex tape. <laughs> um, or go into the city. So... So don't become a music artist. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what do you go into it for? And you go into it for love um, and the love of music. And when I did leave the army, my father told me I, I was an idiot for doing so because I was in a job with a secure wage. And I said, you know, Dad, life is about happiness. Um, and if I'm doing music and I'm enjoying it and I'm happy, then that's a success. Um, and if I give it up in a few years and I've, I've lived out my ambition and I've tried it, that will do for me because it would be terrible to live your life and look back and say, I talked about doing this, and I just didn't have the guts to try. Um, so for that reason, whatever your ambition, um, do it. Do it for love and do it for happiness, and if it makes you happy, that is the su success. And if you earn some dosh along the way, then that's a bonus. Thank you. I'll go to the question over here. Hi, uh, I was just curious, when you were back in the military, and there was this artistic, kind of emotional nature side of you, and there was also this rational, decisive side of you. And how did these two sides speak to each other? Does one side necessarily make the other weaker? I think people really misunderstand what soldiers are. In our media, you really assume that a soldier in a uniform must be an incredibly aggressive person. Um, but probably not. You know, probably um, a politician is a really aggressive person. They, they get in, you know, they confront, and they have egos, and they, they have a sense of power. Um, and they want to exercise that power and use their armies. But soldiers are, you take the uniform away and they're a human, a man or a woman like you. And they also have to be incredibly sensitive to a surrounding. I was a reconnaissance officer. My job was to go and ass assess what the enemy um, will find them and then assess what their intentions were. Um, and, and then pass those on to my superiors. Um, in many ways, I do the same now. You know, I... Um, I go out and I look and, 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 and aware and sensitive to the world around me and I, and I then go back and I stand up on the stage and I sing it to my superiors, you. Um, and so, yeah, as a, as a soldier, the notion of being sensitive to your surroundings, to be aware, um, to have emotion is really important because you know what, if you're in somebody else's country and there's you know, violence between two uh, different entities, you need to be able to really understand and read what they're gonna do to each other and why they're doing it to each other and understand both sides because both of them will be right in their minds and both of them will be wrong as well. Thank you. Can we go to the question from the lady at the end of the second row? 
One of my favourite songs by you was Billy. Was it based on anyone in particular? Like a friend? Yeah, Billy is my best friend. He's a little bastard. He owes me lots of money. <laughs> um, and the only way I was ever going to see that cash back was by writing a really horrid song about him. And now I do feel a little bit guilty. Um, because, yeah, I think he lost a girlfriend over that. So I should steal from you if I want you to write a song about me? Yeah, exactly. Go for it. <laughs> uh, we'll go to the question about halfway back. Uh, yeah, just next to you, Critty. I wondered, does it ever bother you when your lyrics are censored? And what do you think to censorship of lyrics and music videos? Um, I kind of understand it. You know, obviously I swore at you today in my song. <laughs> I apologise um, for anyone, anyone who's underage. Um, I think entirely right. If you're going to have a song on the radio, it should be censored. And so on the radio, that says uh, flying high. Quite right. Um, and in my concerts, I normally lean forward and now the audience still will swear and they seem to enjoy that as the highlight of the concert, actually. Thank you. And we'll go to the question uh, at the end of that row near the wall. Have you ever considered performing at an Oxford May Ball? And if not, the committee are very keen to have you at the 27 St Hilda's one. <laughs> awesome. Uh, let's speak to my manager. <laughs> let's get that going. That sounds fun. How much do they pay? I don't know. How much do you pay? Would you be able to politely say no afterwards? <laughs> I, think, I think it's a no. <laughs> um, you know, I really, I did come to um, the Mayball here. Um, the one where everyone jumps into the, into the water from the bridge and breaks their legs. Mayday. The, the Mayday ball. Um, if it's anything like that, shit yes, I'm in. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we'll go to the question from the lady near the door. Um, what, me what kind of music are you listening to at the moment? I only listen to my own music. <laughs> I'm serious. And a bit of Ed Sheeran? I have, I, I have been writing with Ed Sheeran, actually. Um, trying, to, um, trying to glean a little bit of his, you know, of his gold dust off him. So, yeah, watch this space. Very exciting. Uh, we'll go to the question about halfway back on my right-hand side. Hi. Uh, when you left the army and became a musician, did you stay in touch with all the people you were close with in the army, and how has that relationship sort of developed over time? Um, Masses of them, absolutely, yes. Um, they're really you know, great, great friends of mine, um, and still are, because you make incredibly close friendships through the army. Um, and also, it's really grounding. You know, I'm in a job now which um, deals with you know, who's hot and who's not, who's, who's cool and who's not, um, and about hair and makeup, a lot of it as well. Uh, and yet, when I, so if I ever think I have a difficult day, if I ever have had a, a, you know, a, a crap interview and, and things have gone badly, a quick phone call to any of my friends who might have been in, in Iraq or Afghanistan when they were just telling me stories about so-and-so's leg was blown off, it's kind of a pretty much puts things into perspective, and so I'm very glad to still have those relationships. I went out to Orlando last week um, or was it two weeks ago, to go and play at the Invictus Games um, for Prince Harry. 
and there's such an amazing kind of bond of old soldiers and so the moment I was playing on the stage in front of 20 odd thousand people and being broadcaster 15 maybe more there's, there's you know there's a few dozen million people and I played one bum note and all the British st soldiers started going whoa whoa you've cocked it up there <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah you kind of know where you stand with um, with a bunch of soldiers thank you uh, the question right at the back by the camera Thank you. I think that you said that your wife was here with you tonight. That's and correct. And I was wondering if you could introduce her and tell us a bit about her. <laughs> no pressure if uh, she's shy. Well, actually, no, I thought instead what we're going to do is we're going to play a game of Where's Wally? <laughs> and you could try and figure out which one she is. <laughs> Good luck. I wonder if we've got any um, answers to those tweets that we gave out. Yeah, come on, has anyone got any good tweet answers? Does anyone have a, have a sheet with anything written on it? Over there? Does it have some answers? Can we bring the microphone over here, perhaps? Come on. This is... Any good? The handwriting is so bad. <laughs> My noodle bar experience has been ruined. Sorry, Live Forever says, my noodle bar experience has been ruined due to them playing James Blunt, wankers. Um, and Oxford University's reply is, goodbye to your noodles then. Hope they hadn't been the ones. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I see what you did there. James Blunt left the... Shannon, Shannon says, James Blunt left the army because he's a wimp and can't sing. Um, that's, uh, that's in inverse commas. The things my granddad comes out with. And the answer is, well, that's blunt. <laughs> you guys are pretty good at this. I am going to use these, and I promise you I'll be putting that's these up. Yeah, come on. Okay, this is a good one, and this is my kind of humour. Contrary to what his name suggests, James Blunt really beats around the bush. Oxford says... Your mum didn't seem to mind. <laughs> um, the great the mum jokes are always the best. <laughs> I thought handwriting so bad on so many years, I can't, you're like doctors. Someone knows your doctors. Ah, oh, here's one. Henry writes, James fucking Blunt. Um, Oxford says, fucking James Blunt, you mean. It's great. <laughs> so, thank you. I think for me, this has been a real worthwhile trip. Because <laughs> uh, I, now, I now have probably six months' worth of tweets uh, that I'll be using at James Blunt. Do follow me. <laughs> you know, we do charge commission. <laughs> <laughs> great. We've got time for uh, a few more questions. Uh, let's go to the question towards the back of the chamber on my right-hand side, quite near the fire escape. 
Hi, James. Thanks again for coming in. Um, I'd like to talk briefly again about your experiences uh, in Kosovo. Um, you mentioned earlier about part of one of the aspects of being a musician and being a soldier is adapting to new situations very quickly. Um, now, as many people know in this room, Kosovo is a, a state that has been rife with um, ethnic tensions for, for quite some time now. How did you and your fellow soldiers uh, adapt to deal with the, the underlying ethnic issues that were at play in, in the state when you were deployed there? Um, I think basically through understanding before any um, the British Army are sent anywhere we try and do a little bit of our homework we try and teach our soldiers about the different problems uh, the different ethnicities that we are going to come across we even try and learn a little bit of the language really simple things like you know is this a minefield um, useful <laughs> useful questions um, and if you're unsure whether it's a minefield you say please would you show me the way through this field they're <laughs> um, so useful phrases that you learn um, and yeah, it's really about understanding. And as I was saying, you know, if, if you have a Muslim um, on one side, a Muslim Albanian um, and an Orthodox uh, Christian um, Serb on the other, um, they are actually adamant and fervent that they're right. Um, and, and, and they will, you know, and they might die for that particular cause, but they're right in their way. And, and the fact they can't understand the other side is what makes them wrong. And, and that's just, that's in Kosovo as an example. But that surely is for every single thing that we deal with right now is not being able to understand because, you know, most, most wars that we go get involved in, um, the people who are our enemies on the whole, on the whole, I would say, um, you know, believe in, in their cause just as rightly as we might do ours. Of course, there are some that are more dubious, but, you know, but, um, but on the whole, the soldier on the ground sort of believes in his cause just as, as much as us. And I don't think we are always the good guys, and I don't think we are either able to be the police of the world and think that we are the ones with the halos over our head all the time. So it's about understanding. Thank you. We'll go to the question uh, from the member in the second row behind the press bench. Hi, um, I come from Valise too, so that's a pleasure to hear so positive things about this region. I live uh, very close to Verbier, so. <laughs> but my question is, how do you uh, manage your stress in front of millions of people? Do you perform better in front of millions of people, or is that a problem for you? Um, I think it's much more fun, uh, in many ways, playing in front of a smaller audience, because um, with thousands, obviously, there's a great uh, energy, but you can't necessarily see the whites of everyone's eyes. And so, in many ways, it's, it's more intense playing into a small room like this because I can, I'm watching you. <laughs> and I can see who's not paying attention. Um, uh, and, yeah, there's an intensity on that. And, you know, the audience, as it gets smaller and smaller, it probably becomes more intense. And if I was to stand just in front of you, just you and me in this room, and pull out the song, it would be, it would be you know, be a bit manic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we'll go to the question from the gentleman three rows back on my right-hand side. Yeah, chuck it. If you could be one person, whoever you want, for one day, who would it be? Uh, good question. I think uh, Wonder Woman had a pretty good gig. <laughs> um, I really liked her outfit. Um, and, and she was pretty speedy reactions. And, you know, that's as much as I could give you on that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, the gentleman on the second row on my left-hand side. Uh, so you spoke of when you ignore this order uh, and you stop World War III. I was wondering if you got in any trouble for doing that. 
And, and if so, what it was? Um, no, I didn't. Um, uh, so I was questioning an order and, and questioning it you know, with... I think that's the other thing you think about the army is the army is not just about obeying orders blindly. Um, and because if you then relinquish any responsibility, um, um, th you know, through it being due to orders, um, that will come back to you if those orders are illegal, um, as did happen then in, in the Second World War. The German army soldiers who had carried through these orders that were just blatantly immoral and wrong still found themselves um, in a court. Um, and so, so, no, if something is absolutely wrong, the British army specifically is told, you know, you, you've got a mission, but how you do it is up to you, and you must question what's going on around you. Um, and you've got to try and use your brain. And if you can't use yours, I was really lucky. I was an officer. I had sergeants around me who, were, um, who had 14 years more experience who could point me in the right direction. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this evening. Could you please remain in your seats and join me in thanking once again James Blunt. <laughs>